0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: It's a fabulous resource for um, material on uh, Theravadan Buddhism. It includes translations by Tan Jeff of huge hunks of the Pali canon and lots of uh, even whole books available in PDF format. It's just a great resource. So I recommend that you just go and, and uh, poke around and see what you can find there. Study guides for all kinds of topics based uh, pretty uh, firmly in, in, the, in scriptures. But this is a, a particular letter that he wrote about two styles of insight meditation. And in approaching the Dhammapada, I want to approach it in a particular way. So let me just read the first paragraph of this um, to get a sense of, of what he's getting at. He says, Today the practice of insight meditation has gained global popularity, yet in achieving this success it has undergone a subtle metamorphosis. Rather than being taught as an integral part of the Buddhist path, it's now often presented as a secular discipline whose fruits pertain more to life within the world than to super release." Many meditators testify to the tangible benefits they've gained from the practice of insight meditation, benefits that range from enhanced job performance and better relationships to deeper calm, more compassion, and greater awareness. However, while such benefits may certainly be worthwhile in their own right, taken by themselves, they are not the final goal that the Buddha himself holds up as the endpoint of the training. That goal, in the terminology of the text, is the attainment of nibbana, the destruction of all defilements here and now, and the deliverance from the beginningless round of rebirth? And he goes, he goes on, but he's essentially saying that there is a there. Are, we're we're talking about two different approaches to our practice. One is to upgrade our experience of samsara, <laughs> and the other is to um, is to pursue. Liberation, And in, order, in the pursuance of, of, the, the, uh, of liberation, he says, take a look at the Buddha's teachings um, in the spirit of faith in the Buddha as uh, a teacher. So when the Buddha says, for example, uh, don't despise any being in any state, as he says in the Metta Sutta, we can say we can all think of people who we might regard with some despision, if there is such a word. <laughs> you know, and we can say, well, you know, the Buddha just didn't know so-and-so. Um, or we can say, well, look, we've got some work to do here. This is, um, you know, in following the Buddha's direction. I, I teach a dharma that doesn't contend with anyone, he says in the Honeyball Sutta. Uh, that's a pretty steep, uh, that's a pretty steep uh, prescription. So the idea here is to, is to begin to approach the Dhammapada as uh, almost a lesson guide, as instructions um, for how to live and how to practice. Um, the Dhammapada is a collection of verses that were assembled... Um, in the wake of the, the Buddha's passing, and after a few hundred words, a few hundred years after his his death, they became um, formulated in the the fashion that we have now. Um, the collection includes material from other places in scripture. Some places. Uh, in in the general culture of the time, so there's aphorisms and and things that are present in the um, in the Dhammapada that are folk wisdom of the time, and then there's some some elements that are uh, unique to to this particular collection. Um, the Dhammapada is uh, I, I just love the Dhammapada. It's it's uh, very deeply poetic, and it uses uh, poetic metaphor to refer to um, our experience in ways that are very hard to point to uh, with the kind of uh, direct use of language that we use in the sciences when we talk about our, the external world. Metaphor talks more, uh, and poetry talks more, about uh, our internal life. And so a huge, a huge amount of attention uh, is directed by the use of, of, of metaphor um, and one of the one of the strongest of the metaphors is a use of, of duality. He he he. Um, this collection highlights uh, the path to nirvana and the path to worldly success, and says this is different. The the wise man and the fool. Um, there are. A, you know, uh, nibbana and samsara, liberation and entanglement, and um, so the use of the use of uh, contrast, the contrast of uh, um, opposites, dichotomies. In fact, that's the the title of the first the first uh, chapter of verses. The way Gill has translated it uh, is an example of that. So. We're going to go through the Dhammapada um, uh, in a couple of different ways, thematically, and uh, we're going to start with um, just the first chapter. Uh, the first chapter actually is interesting because it is uh, titled pairs or dichotomies or opposites. And the, last, and the last chapter is the Brahman. So the last chapter is the chapter on one who has overcome all dichotomies, all all uh, dualities. So we start with duality and we end with the, um, the achievement of, of uh, liberation. But I wanted to start by pointing at some of the, the elements of the Dharma that uh, are contained in the Dhammapada, some of the we um can pass these, these critters out Uh, from another sutta um, in the Anguttara Nikaya uh, called the Gautami Sutta. And the reason that I want to point point this out is because um, both the Dhammapada and the Gautami Sutta and the the scriptural texts were formulated long before the kind of Dharma uh, uh, talk that we get Oh that those were my those were my notes. Yeah. <laughs> so I just passed out my notes. Which would make it very tough for me to talk, but um, are there enough of those? I can, I can make some. Oh, I... Because it's this one, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: I'm sorry. I thought I had a I thought I had uh, a couple dozen of them, but it turned out to be my notes. Um, it was a formulation of the Dharma at the at the uh, just just in the passing of, of the Buddha, whereas today we get a lot of um, reassuring texts. A lot of there's a lot of psychology uh, uh, that's inserted into the Dharma teachings, um, uh, forgiveness teachings, which which come out of uh, Christian teachings. More than out of the uh, the original scriptures. So what I want to do is to take a look at just what the um, what the the Dhamma looked like to the Buddha. And so the Gautami Sutta, which you guys will have, I will I will read, and, and you will you will get copies. I apologize for only having brought two. Uh, I just looked at the stack, and uh, there was a big stack, but it was it was my notes. Um, I've heard that at one time the Blessed One was staying at Vesali in the peaked roof hall of the Great Forest. Then Mahabhajapati got on me. Mahabhajapati was the Buddha's um, stepmother, his, his aunt who, be, who was served as his wet nurse when his mother died shortly after his birth. Um, and was the, the woman who approached him and asked for the ordination of women. When he he went to the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down to him, stood to one side. As she was standing there, she said to him, It would be good, Lord, if the Blessed One would teach me the Dhamma in brief, such that having heard the Dhamma from the Blessed One, I might dwell alone, secluded, heedful, ardent, and resolute. And the Buddha said, God these the qualities of which you may know, these qualities lead to passion, not dispassion, to being fettered, not to being unfettered, to accumulating, not to shedding, to self-aggrandizement, not to modesty, to discontent, not to contentment, to entanglement, not to seclusion, to laziness, not to arouse persistence, to being burdensome, not to being unburdensome. You may categorically hold these are not the Dhamma, this is not the Vinaya, this is not the teacher's instruction. As for the qualities which you may know, these qualities lead to dispassion, not to passion, to being unfettered, not to being fettered, to shedding, not to accumulating, to modesty, to contentment, to seclusion, to aroused persistence, and to being unburdensome. This is the Dhamma, this is the Vinaya, this is the teacher's instruction. So these are the, these are the elements of the Dhamma, as the Buddha passed on to uh, his stepmom as f- uh, for identifying what is the Dharma now there 's you know this we 're not talking about some of the things that are very commonly recognized as Dharma teachings here Metta practice um, uh, dhana practice uh, and the various forgiveness practices and many of the um, many of the things that show up in in, in dharma scenes. So i just run through these these uh, eight elements for recognizing the dharma. There's a there's a book that Tan Jeff has written, recognizing the dharma. He's assembled. Uh, it, there used to be some copies of, out on the on the shelves out there. Um, and you can find it at the Access to Insight website as well. But it's, he goes through these eight elements and refers to various places in the, the, uh, the rest of the, the canon and scriptures as examples and to, to illustrate uh, what these, these elements are. But I want to go through them because we're going to see these things throughout the Dhammapada. And they, they really capture in some ways the flavor the, of the Dhammapada and the feeling tone of the teachings. And one of the things that I hope we, we get to do today, at, by the end of the day, is have a, a good sense of just what it feels like, what the Dhammapada is, is pre- presenting to us as, as uh, the teaching uh, of the Buddha, um, certainly as it was understood uh, just a, a few hundred years after the Buddha's passing dispassionate and not passionate some of these things don't seem terribly sexy uh, but but dispassionate um, rather than passionate there's a tendency for us to want to cling to pleasant experience to want things to be to feel good on a scale of one to ten we'd sort of like it to be cruising around seven or so isn't but that would that be? Would that make us happy? Seven. We m- might really root for eight, but and and uh, not squawk too much if it's around five. <laughs> but dispassion is, is a, a condition, is a, a state of of not um, of recognizing that that pleasant and unpleasant come and go, comes and goes like the weather. And when, you know, it doesn't do us a whole lot of good to, to whine and complain about the, about the weather. Um, we want the good stuff, we see the good things, our uh, desire arises for them, we chase after them, we think we're going to make ourselves happy by chasing what we want and getting what we want. And... I know I'm still working, <laughs> working on that uh, uh, that model um, but the world's pretty things it's not just dispassion about the world's pretty things it's, it's dispassion about um, the unlovely things as well to not revile them to not uh, as, as much because um, Equanimity involves being present with and engaged with whatever arises and, and passes in our experience. And so, dispassion in regard to um, our experience is the first of the elements unf- unfettered instead of fettered. Um, you know, we are fettered by the things we cling to. You know, the story about the, uh, the monkey trap. The, it's, I don't actually know whether anybody really uses these, but here's how it here's how they're described. You take a coconut. I guess it's Indonesian, right? So you take a coconut and you hollow it out, and you put a little hole in it that's big enough for the monkey to put his hand in, and then you tie the thing with vines and stuff to a stake in the ground, and you put some rice in the coconut and the monkey sticks his hand in and when he grabs the rice he's got a fist and the fist won't come out through the hole so it's a monkey trap that traps the monkey by his own clinging his own holding on to what he wants he won't let go, if he let go he could pull his hand out and be free but even as the hunter comes with the club to get him he won't let go and we don't let go either and we're fettered by the things that we don't let go of. Um, and we'll take a look at, at some of those things in the, um, in the Dhammapada. Shedding and not accumulating. Well, shedding is, is just a, uh, what we should be doing <laughs> with the fetters, <laughs> is letting go of them. Um... And yet, we—the uh, accumulation, the more is better, particularly even in the midst of pleasant experience. We want more of this? The—the um, the ability to not cling, dispassion, uh, unfettered, shedding—all um, have to do with our freedom. And, and not with uh, holding on to the things that we think are going to make us happy because things come and go. Modesty versus self-aggrandizing. You know, modesty, there's a, the tendency, when I first read this, the tendency to think we're talking about bragging. But I'm not so sure that it's just about ba- bragging. I think that it has to do with, the, with self-assertion and the assertion of our opinions, for example. Um, and the assertion of our judgments, which judgments are essentially, uh, they grow from ideas we have of how things ought to be. If We think things should be, people should be consistent. Then when people are inconsistent, we say, bad, bad, that's not good. We think people should be kind. And then when we see people being grumpy, we say, shouldn't be that way. We think people should, well, in the political realm, we've got a gazillion things that we think, the way we think people ought to be judgments come out of out of those constructions, and so I think modesty in some sense really has to do with our willingness to not be so assertive about our opinions and the things that uh, the way we think things uh, ought to be so it 's not just a matter about uh, about bragging in the honeyball suit of the, the the Buddha is asked by one of his cousins, Dandapani, who is not a fan of the Buddha. So he sort of says, well, what does the holy man teach? What is, what's, what is this dharma that you teach? And the Buddha said, I teach a dharma that doesn't contend with anyone. That's a pretty steep, that's a pretty high bar. And I'm not sure, and, and part, of, part of the practice is to figure out just how you do that. <laughs> you know, Um With contentment and not being discontent. There's a, a uh, Ajahn Jumnian, who's a a Thai forest monk, who shows up at Spirit Rock pretty much every year in the late spring, early summer. Um, was there once, and and uh, um, he was he was talking about uh, how things were going, and and just a a quote that my wife wrote down as he spoke, which was just amazing because it it was nice to look at. He said, when people say, Ajahn, let's go for a a beautiful walk, fine, I'll go. If they don't ask, that's fine too. I don't expect a walk to be any more satisfying than sitting alone. It could be hot and windy out there. If people bring me delicious food, great. If they don't, I need to diet anyway. If I'm feeling good, that's okay. If I'm sick, That's okay too. It's a great excuse to lie down. It's just being content rather than irritated with whatever is is present. Um, You know, our cultural ideology of optimism, we've we've got it, it's out there, you know, is is always looking towards things better in the future, which leads us to be discontent with what what we've got here in, in the present. Um, so contentment is not really—it's uh, not really cultivated in this in this culture. We're not encouraged to be content. We're encouraged to, uh, oh dear, the earlier things acc- accumulate and not shed, and you know, um, seclusion and not entanglement. Um, this is this is an interesting one because seclusion I don't interpret as necessarily uh claim uh, you can get Victor a copy of this if there's an extra one um or maybe there isn't an extra one um, it's not just physical you know the buddha the Buddha has um his last words uh you know be Be a lamp unto yourself, sometimes translated as be an island unto yourself, because apparently the Pali word, depending on inflection, could be translated um, either way. But the idea is um, in verse 50 of the Dhammapada. um, now, don't be concerned, we'll, we'll get to it, but don't be concerned about what others do, but be concerned about what you are doing. Pay attention to your own responsiveness, your own reaction. Uh, seclusion versus entanglement. The opposite of entanglement isn't necessarily disentanglement, just like the opposite of attachment isn't detachment. The opposite of entanglement is involvement, engagement. Um, But engagement in the sense of being aware of just what we're bringing to the table, and um, and we'll see a lot of uh, this this theme in the Dhammapada. Um, persistence and not laziness. This is this is a major theme in the Dhammapada. Uh, I, it's to the point where the Buddha said, if you're not you know, there's an old Bob Dylan line He who's not busy being born is busy dying. What's that from? Darkness at the. I even know what the album looked like, but I can't. <laughs> it's all right, Ma. Yeah, he not busy being born is busy dying. Persistence. If you're not active, you're going to float downstream. Go with the flow, and you're going to be. Chasing your desires, the objects of your desires. Persistence, persistent effort, right effort is part of the Eightfold Path. This is not something that you can read about and say, that sounds good, I'm, I, I got it down. It's something that takes effort, it takes work, it takes some cultivation. There's no magic word that will awaken us. Uh, ultimately, it depends on our efforts, uh, and, and rejoicing in vigilance is one of the themes that we'll see in the Dhammapada. And the last, unburdensome versus being burdensome. Um, you know, again, this this comes back to, uh, I think, of, of the the burden of our burdening others with our opinions, with our plans, with. Uh, um, I see that almost more of a of a burden than than what we conventionally uh, think of as burdensome. So these these eight elements, uh, dispassion, being unfettered, shedding modesty, contentment, seclusion, aroused persistence, and being unburdensome. Those seem to me uh, to be you know major. Major elements in the um, in the Dhammapada that we'll account that will encounter throughout the throughout the text. Yes, yeah, okay, up to, up to this point. So what I've done is to I'm I'm using Gill's um, translation and. Um, It'll come up with it in a second. I'm using Gill's translation. There are a dozen, there are dozens of translations of the Dhammapada, uh, some of which are better than others. And um, what I wanted, what I wanted to do, is to to work with Gill's because actually, after a while, it becomes really clear that his, his is really the best. And it's not just that I like him; it's just it really is the best. Um, and I'm sorry.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, Gil, if you're listening. Um, but it, it really is excellent. So what I want to do is to is to do just uh, I wanted to work with this. And I thought, well, there's some people who are going to come without copies of the of the text. So I've got some I've got copies of the of some of the material that I'm going to use. But I thought, well, I just can't run it all through a copier. And hand it out. So we're gonna we're gonna use some of the um, some of the uh, slides to be able to work with the text. Here, can you pass these out? This is this this verse number one eighty three, is um, is really is very common and recognized out there. It's used a lot as just as the shortest description of the Buddhist of the Buddhist teachings. And what 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 I'm passing out here is a set of different translations of that one verse so that you can get a sense of how different people might translate the, the same the same language into different different kinds of verse. Um, doing no evil, engaging in what is skillful, and purifying one's mind. This is the teachings of the Buddha. That's Gill's translation. If you look at some of some of the others, I've got what another four other four different uh, translations here. To avoid all evil, to cultivate good, and to cleanse one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. Or Tan Jeff's translation, the non-doing of any evil, the performance of what's skillful, the cleansing of one's own mind. This is the teaching of the awakened. Now Th- Thomas Byram's book, this, this was, I've had this book for, I don't know, 30 years. Um, and it's, it's, it's loved by a lot of people. But my understanding about this book is that it's not a translation that Thomas Byram um, didn't translate from the Pali, that he sat down with a bunch of translations and came up with his own version. So he says, Yet the teaching is simple. Do what is right. Be pure. At the end of the way is freedom. Till then, patience. Patience. Now, Gil is. Tra- oh, let me. Let's just read the last one. Narada's not to do any evil, to cultivate good, to purify one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. Now, it's interesting that all four of those, except for Byram's, use the word evil. And I think it just made Byram uneasy, uh, and it may make some of us uneasy. It, it has resonances with a lot of uh, fundamentalist. Morality, and and some people find the word evil uh, tough tough one to take. In in the, the uh, preface to, or the introduction to to, to the book, Gill explains that he's translating uh, the word papa as evil, and everybody else seems to do it that way too. I I never became a Pali scholar, so I just l- listen to what the scholars say. <laughs> Um, but the idea is, um, what Gill says is that, that the word papa is uh, is is not so well translated as um, he says. Papa is what causes suffering in oneself as well as harm to other people. It is the causal condition for an unfortunate rebirth. Yeah, please, go ahead.
3: So I, it, it brings to mind the choice of the word evil versus like non-harming. Mm-hmm. Is, is there an additional valence in that?
1: Well, non-harming is, um, is not harming. <laughs> Where, where sometimes uh there there's a verse um, hatred never ceases by hatred but by non hatred alone and it's often translated as by love alone i've heard I've heard that but the but the poly is just non non hatred um, so non harming non harming is an interesting issue um, because if I give my granddaughter, if I take her to the doctor and make sure that the nurses are holding her, because she doesn't want a flu shot, she's big enough to put up a fight, um, is that harming her? To, to stick that needle in her arm? You know, it's causing pain and certainly, but you know, how do you, where do you, uh, where, where do you find. The distinction there about harming—we'll talk a little bit about that uh, a little bit farther along—but the translation of of evil here is um, is something that that uh, Byron balks at, and maybe some other people too. But but it's a translation. It is. Now, we can we can turn the lights on. We don't need it down because you can see. I think you can see that. I just sort of feel hazy. It's. <laughs> I, think,
4: I think. it's like a, calling a spade a spade. That's what an evil is evil.
1: It's intention.
4: There's no. There's no, there's no gray matter here. You're either right or you're wrong. You
1: know? Well, I think that that we're talking about intention here. There's an intention to. Um, Not necessarily to cause harm, but to be negligent, at least to the consequences of what you uh, of what you do. So, with with my granddaughter, um, it was a great scene, um, getting her inoculated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but um, the intention was not to harm her. The intention was 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 for her benefit. I notice one of the things that strikes me about about this verse, which is used, I, th- I think it's been the the. the I'm sorry. Google doing no evil. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, doing no evil, engaging in what is skillful, and purifying one's mind. Uh, this is the teaching of the Buddha. You know, this is um, it's it's the at the top of the page of the Access to Insight website, and what's, what strikes me about it is that meditation is not the first thing. You know? Doing no evil and engaging in what is skillful. And then purifying one's mind. It's not purify one's mind and then get your act together. It's get your act together. You know. I think that's... Um, One of the, one of the uh, elements of the Dhammapada, although it was, it was written for uh, monastics, it was aimed at monastics uh, largely. As a merchant carrying great wealth in a small caravan avoids a dangerous road, as someone who loves life avoids poison, so you should avoid evil deeds. Just avoid them. There's an interesting uh, section. I, I actually went looking for it and couldn't find it. Uh, but I, I, I know it's there. And maybe somebody, maybe one of you guys knows. But there was a point in the Buddha's development he, where he was still an unenlightened bodhisattva, he says. And he, he this thought occurred to him. Some of my actions are for the benefit of myself and others and some of them are for the detriment of myself and others. And I decided just to abandon those that are for the detriment of myself and others and only do those that are for the benefit. That's pretty good. It would be nice to set that up as a precept uh, and to be able to pull that off. Um, So... As someone who loves life avoids poison, so should you avoid evil deeds—deeds deeds that um, intentionally lead to harm, and that uh, are the cause of, a, of an unfortunate rebirth, as as Gill translates the—is um, what causes suffering in oneself as well as harm to others, and it's the causal condition for an unfortunate rebirth. Yeah. they're the first two they're just the first two I've I've, I've got a whole bunch
0: (laughs) no I know but um, you know they're skipping they're going forward to one number and back Mm -hmm. to another and I didn't know if you had a particular intent in in the way that you're approaching it well I
1: I -hmm. I like the the first the first verse is used a lot to describe the Buddhist teachings in one sentence Mm -hmm. you know what are the Buddhist teachings in brief do no evil Practice what's skillful and cultivate the mind. You know, that's often a real you know, a brief summary of this teaching. And I, I think the fact that um, you know, he's, he's focusing on avoiding evil deeds even more than sitting and meditating. You know, for, for lay people in Asia, most lay people in Asia don't meditate, and many monks don't either. Um, we're adopting these monastic-like practices. Uh, it's experimental for lay people to be doing this. So where this is going to take us is not entirely clear. Um, lay people practice, in Asia practice, the you know, precepts and generosity. And it's not like those things are, as Andy Olensky says, they're not the booby prize. They are serious practice. The the heart of the Eightfold Path is um, right speech, right action, right livelihood, or skillful speech, skillful action, skillful livelihood. And we often treat our practice as if it's a one-fold path, you know, mindfulness meditation. And sometimes we make it a two-fold path. We've got to get some concentration in there, you know. (laughs) Um, But it's an eightfold path. Um, and I, I think this highlights, um, this is just one of my favorite, one of my favorite uh, pieces from the, um, do not consider the faults of others or what they have or haven't done. Consider rather your, what, what you yourself have or haven't done. This is that, um, uh, seclusion. This is the, the seclusion issue from from the Gāthāmi Sutta. Um, you know, the focus is on your own practice. It's often, people w- w- you know, will look at others and say, "Well, others are doing this. You know, they're breaking precepts or they're not behaving." You know, but the Buddha saying, "For the quality of your own heart and the quality." the potential of your own awakening and liberation. Don't consider the faults of others. Take a look at your own behavior, your own action. Um, there's a, a translation of it that uh, I don't think is as good as Gill's, but it, but I, I, it, it uh, is one that I use in my mind a lot, which is what others do or do not do is not of concern to me. What I do or do not do is of concern to me. And we're often looking at others with an eye towards judgment. And that means an eye toward, we have an idea of how things ought to be. That's where judgment comes from. It always comes from that. We have an idea about how, that we cling to. It should be this way, it shouldn't be that way. And if we notice our clinging, that's the way, to, that's, that's the beginning of the path towards non contention. Just to notice our clinging to those to those judgments. But consider what you yourself have or haven't done. This is this is really at the at the heart of our own liberation, rather than looking to other people and seeing, you know. How they're doing, so it's okay for me to do whatever. the The idea here is our own, is our own freedom. Oh, did that go, did that go to the next one? Let me just go to the. This is a very. Um, uh, this is the the Buddha's declaration of an awakening, which is often. Uh, shows up as his description of, of um, house builder you are seen you will not build a house again all the rafters are broken the ridgepole destroyed the mind gone to the unconstructed the mind gone to the unconstructed has reached the end of craving um, you guys have some of you don 't have copies of the of gill 's translation with you, right okay um, the 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 verse before through many births i 've wandered on and on searching for but never finding the builder of this house to be born again and again is suffering house builder you are seen you are, you will not build this house again this is his his declaration of of awakening, the mind gone to the unconstructed has reached the end of craving. I, I, I want to say something about the unconstructed, and we're we're going to to finish up this little introduction here, and then and then jump into the first chapter. Um, the unconstructed is off; it's a noun. It's it's the way it's presented here, and so there's a tendency to think of it as a thing there's a tendency to think of um, the awakened state as a state, as something that we we need to get, to step into, uh, to become aware of. Um, And the unconstructed here is one way of of referring to it. Often it's referred to as uh, the the deathless. um, What are some of the other the other words, the unconditioned nibbana. Now, interestingly about nibbana, uh, we, we interpret, we, we translate that as a, as a noun, or we think of it as a noun, as a thing. Um, Gil's, Gil has a little piece in The Inquiring Mind this month where he refers to it as a, a gerund, which is a verb, a noun form of the verb. And it really Bhikkhu Bodhi and uh, some of some of the other uh, scholars that that I follow say it's a, an intransitive verb. It's something we do. It's not something we get. So the unconstructed is when we're not constructing. <laughs> it's not a thing that you get when you don't construct. It's not something. There's a tendency. The reason that it's important is because there's a tendency underneath this to see this as. Uh, the unmoved mover, Aristotle's unmoved mover. You know, there's some, um, the Brahman, the spirit that animates everything. And the Buddha was pretty clear about not, uh, not positing uh, that kind of a thing. So I, I think the mind gone to the unconstructed has reached the end of craving. I, th- I think it's important to point that uh, we're not talking about, uh, we're talking about it's not doing something. Uh, Samsara also is uh, is apparently an intransitive verb. So you can Samsara or you can (laughs) Nibbana. Please.
5: How would you describe uh, a house builder?
1: Uh, Well, the house builder, it's it's a metaphor for the... um, And it actually exteriorizes it, objectifies it. For the impulses which um, uh, are are clinging, the clinging impulses, the the uh, uh, the impulses to build, to create um, a um, something to cling to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. House builder. I've se- basically he's saying I've seen just how clinging. And suffering get built, and I may be slow, but I'm not stupid. Once I see that, <laughs> I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> I think that's sort of where we are. You know, we're sort of we're we're not stupid. Once we, you know, the insight shows up, we go, oh, now I get it. You know, uh, it it takes a while to to get that that insight. But this is this particular verse is he uses a lot, or people use a lot to to illustrate the Buddha's. Um, Declaration of Awakening. I
4: think he's really talking about an Arhant. Well, he... Yeah,
1: he anyway, that's well. A, that's the liberation. Well, he was... Bizarre. Yeah, well, he was, the Buddha was the Arhant of all Arhants. Yeah, but there was other Arhants as well. Maybe not at first. The Buddha the Buddha, trained... Uh, or On the Buddha's path, the Buddha found... He was the self-awakened one. And the difference between um, a Buddha... And in our hunt is the, the Buddha was self-awakened. Much more difficult um, than to have someone say, here, try this. <laughs> you know, we are so lucky to have his teachings. Because, just speaking for myself, probably would have missed this. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um... A couple, more, a couple more just things to, to scan the, um, the range of where, where, where the, the texts are going. If by giving up a lesser happiness one could experience greater happiness, a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. I don't think we would debate that. The trick is that if we saw the gold, we'd go for it. So we're not seeing it already. And so we depend on the Buddha's description of that. You know, we have to have some faith in his description in order to let go, you know, we got our hand on the trap, in order to let go of uh, the lesser happiness, in order to be able to, to uh, find the greater happiness. And so I think um, you know, our relationship to the teacher is important. When the Buddha says, you know, don't despise any being in any state, I just use that phrase from the, from the Metta Sutta. Um, you know, we, we cherish some of our judgments about people being worthy of there's a word dispision? there isn't is there whatever it is uh, yeah yeah, disdain yeah we yeah, we regard there are people and we we cherish our uh disdaining some people, there are people out there, a lot of them in the public public realm that we might even all recognize um, so I think uh it's although it sounds obvious. Yeah, we give up the lesser happiness for the greater, but you know, it's in some cases it's uh, better the devil we know than the devil we don't, or better the devil we know than the heaven we don't. Or do we do we trust that if we let go of these judgments, you know, what happens? Yeah, please.
0: Amen. um i i don't remember when but just recently we were talking about buddha's life he was just doing that relinquishing his family life with wife and child
1: mm-hmm.
0: and going uh renouncing the lesser to go away right to be awakened
1: yeah and how do we recognize the greater happiness? Well, you know, we we listen, we we look to I look to the to the Buddha's teachings. You know, we look to the teachings, uh, and and then the trick is to let go, shedding, letting go. Um, I like this this verse even the gods envy the awakened ones the mindful ones the wise ones who are intent on meditation and delight in the peace of renunciation so renunciation is at the heart here and it's the peace of renunciation that he's talking about even the gods envy those intent on meditation and delighting in the peace of renunciation. We don't think of renunciation as delightful, particularly. I mean, that's not the... uh, Is it? (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Um, We're happy to renounce the unpleasant. Anything unpleasant, we'll renounce that. But why bother renouncing the pleasant? Let it come. It's the unpleasant well that's that's the voice of Mara. <laughs> Don't give yourself to negligence. Don't devote yourself to sensual pleasure. Valiant and absorbed in meditation, one attains abundant happiness. You know, sometimes we don't even recognize what we're doing. The eight worldly dharmas <clears throat> are a set of four uh, pairs of um, things that attract us and repel us. So pleasure and pain. Yeah, we all understand pleasant and unpleasant sort of we we you know for me the, when i think of pleasant and unpleasant the first thing that occurs is is physical pleasant when it's really too cold or too hot unpleasant but we're also talking not just about the physical stuff we're talking about uh, once again our opinions and the things the ideas we have about the way things should be uh, we like our stories to have pleasant endings our movies ought to have pleasant endings. We can't, you know, you can't market a movie that has not so pleasant an ending, you know. We like our, our uh, interior um, mental life to be pleasant and not plagued with stress and tension. Um, gain and loss? Well, we, the gain, of course, of the pleasant. We want more of that and not less of that um, praise and blame you know, which, which is about, it's about judgment but it's also praise and blame there's, there's some sections we'll, we'll come to where the, the purpose the, the, the goal of the uh, uh, the awakened one is not to be swayed by praise or blame what others do or do not do is not of concern now, whether they praise you or 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 accuse you, um, you know, not so much sensual pleasure, please. Well,
5: I noticed uh, vigilant absorbed in meditation one attains abundant happiness. Mm-hmm. I I read Tom Jeff's uh, translation prior to getting mm-hmm. guilt and uh, his well within it really stresses not. Particularly this verse, but really stresses a lot uh, uh, the jhanas and, and being in jhana states throughout the Dhammapada. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was just surprised at the kind of the prevalence.
1: Well, you know, you can you can interpret that as um, this is this is Tan Jeff's interpret translation of that. Don't give way to heedlessness or to intimacy with sensual delight. For heed heedful person absorbed in jhana attains. An abundance of ease. I sort of, um, you know, my take is a little different. Uh, I'm not so sure it's about absorbed in jhana. Um, uh, I like Gill's med- translation better: absorbed in meditation, the stability of mindful awareness. Um, rather than jhana meditation, where you sit on, you know, which, which comes, those kinds of absorptions come while you're sitting on a cushion absorbed in uh, uh, some state. There's in, in um, I don't have a copy of the Mahjama here, but um, there in I think it's uh, not the uh, Salekha Sutta where the Buddha is talking about for some people who say, in these absorption states, I have suppressed the hindrances or i've 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 um, attained an abundance of ease he says this is this is just a pleasant abiding. it comes and goes so you know absorbed in meditation uh, as i as i as I process that, I just hold that as the stability of mindfulness attention to what 's present that means off the cushion as well, uh, vigilant watching oneself yeah
4: I, yeah, I, I agree with what you 're saying there too, but also the fact that you know there comes a point in your, t- in your meditation practice right, and those uh, uh, hindrances are you know, kind of put down you know? 're not being harassed you 're not being uh, uh, assaulted by those uh, hindrances anymore they don't become prominent in your in your meditation practice and when you're when you start to develop calm and um, uh, your mindfulness is strong and your concentration has become pretty balanced with your with your mindfulness then uh death i mean the happiness it, it just it, it just becomes almost you know overwhelming I'm talking about I'm talking about a personal experience of mine, right? Mm-hmm. Where like, <clears throat> where like I was feeling this happiness that was so, so, so intense, you know, that it was it was better than any any best sex I ever had. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking. You know, that's what I mean. And uh, I'm
1: serious. Well, what I would like to do is to. D- did you have you have a comment? No. <laughs> What I'd like to do is to just is to just take this as a as a general orientation to um, the Dhammapada and some of the themes that we've looked at in the in the Ghatami Sutta and, and so far in the beginning, and take a look and 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 work through the first the the very first chapter in in the uh, in the translation. Um, and what I've done here, if you can pass these out to people who don't have copies of the book is I've copied the first chapter here and made those available so we can go through the, the um... do, do we want to do a short break before we for people who, who need to um... okay why don't, we do, why don't we do five minutes here It's, it sets up a lot of the themes that um, the continue through, and uh, and also, if we if we go into this uh, deeply, we can we can. Um, well, let's take a look at this first. Gilt Gill likes to compare in his introduction. He compares the first verses of the Dhammapada with the opening verses in the Bible, and the first the first verse all experience is preceded by mind led by mind made by mind Speaker act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox all experience is preceded by mind led by mind made by mind Speaker act with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a never departing shadow well, there are a couple of things a couple of things there's tons of stuff in here, um, first of all, metaphorically, if just poetically, if you look at the comparison of the wagon wheel following the hoof of the ox, the ox is heavy and it's plodding, and and the the uh, never departing shadow is light; it's substanceless. You know, so so we've got the poetic comparison of what it's like to be acting with a corrupted mind as opposed to a peaceful mind. And then, then, then there's the question, what is he talking about? Really? What is this mind business? What is he talking about? You know? We sort of think we know. But what's a what's a what's a corrupted mind? Do we we sort of think we know? I have something in mind. You know. I have an idea. I mean, or um, experience is preceded by mind. Mind exists. Is it a thing that exists before experience? What, is this? what are we talking about experience? So some of these words are interesting. Experience, all these colors that we all see in our visual field. Is that preceded by mind? What is this mind that we're talking about, that's that's preceding it? Now we have a thought um, in, that we have in mind. I I kind of I kind of read um, read this as. Uh, I, I, in, my own, in my own mind, I, I interpret mind as intention. You know, what elements of mind, in terms of the skandhas, we've got you know, vedana, pleasant, unpleasant. We've got perception, which are our ideas, thoughts, recognitions of the way things are. We've got our, our uh, sankharas, which are all the, the fabrications, the volitional appearances that arise. And we've got the the consciousness at the sense doors, the six six elements of consciousness. Those are the guys are familiar with the skandhas? Hmm. Well let me say let me say a couple things about them fairly quickly. The Buddha um, in his in looking at this experience we find ourselves in He's, he, he sliced it up in a couple of different ways to just try to describe what was going on, because we have ideas of who we are, who we think we are. He said there are six sense bases, for example. We have the five senses that we know of, and the mind, he says, is also, he defines that as a sense base. And he says that the visual sense, for example, that, a, that we have consciousness at each of these sense doors... It's when you have a, an object and a sense organ and there's contact, you get consciousness. So eye consciousness are all these colors and shapes. Ear consciousness is this, the sound of my voice. Not the meaning of the words, but the sound of the voice. So we have the five senses and we have uh, consciousness in, at the mind-sense gate, which includes... Um, well, it includes some other things. Uh, memories and planning and thinking and, and uh, emotions, etc. Now, the skandhas, he said, these are the, this is a slightly different way of slicing up uh, this experience, uh, focused on the kinds of things that we cling to as ourself, that we identify as me, mine. Um, so the first, the first of these elements is, uh, the Pali word is rupa, refers to the body, the five senses, the five physical senses, um, but but almost more um, the tactile sense. So this is this tactile experience, but also the visual and auditory. These, this is rupa. And then there are four mental ones. First, The first that usually is taught after rupa is uh, vedna, which is... Um, the and, and this is hardwired in these are hardwired into our experience Ple- all experience comes with a flavor of either pleasant or unpleasant and often it's it's we include neither pleasant nor unpleasant but that seems to me on a continuum there's the really unpleasant you know that that's the torture agony and then there's the really pleasant which is the ecstatic, whatever, and then it's, you know there's gradients. And the, the neither pleasant or unpleasant seems like sort of a point. You know, So maybe it's, it's probably there, but if you look closely, you'll find that most experience is pleasant or unpleasant. And how do we know? We'd like it to continue. If you want it to continue, it's probably pleasant. If you want it to go away, probably not. So, Vedana is, is one of the skandhas, and we, we identify with that. We say, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy or I like this. Perception. Perception is, is the tendency of the mind to label experience and to identify what is going on. So, often, perception is taught as... Um, you know teacher will say, "This is a pen. you know we look at the floor or the wall. we identify the mind labels it, but it also includes stories about what 's going on. You perceive um, global warming or um, the you know democracy Do you see democracy in this um, in Afghanistan, for example, uh, yes or no, and you know we Our perceptions of, the, of our experience, the concepts that we use to identify what's going on, our opinions, our ideas, and we cling to them. We believe in them. That's the clinging part. We believe these opinions. We believe these perceptions. Um, and, of course, we inflict them <laughs> uh, on ourselves as well as others. Um, And and the perceptions are different from uh, the Sankaras, which the the word is often translated as mental formations, which is a little fuzzy. Usually they're volitional formations. This is the wanting, the the act of will, the wanting preferences, mental activities, constructing, figuring things out. These are all the impulsive Certainly, desires. It's the doing. It's the the active, the active part. So you can create. Let's figure this out. Once you figure it out, then it can be a perception. You know, and you can say, "Ah, that's what's going on." So it's the figuring out part, which is an expression of wanting some clarity, some security. Okay, and we identify with this. I want this. I want that. And the last is, is consciousness, which appears at the different sense gates. So how did I get there? <laughs> oh, I was talking about um, experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. And it's not entirely clear, but uh, I, I interpret mind here as intention. And there, we, we can explore that because throughout the, the Dhammapada, he talks about mind here and mind there. Um, and I think a corrupted mind, in this sense, means, as I interpret it, as I read it, um, intentions that are not skillful, in the sense that unskillful intentions are greed ill will, and cruelty. And we sort of, we don't like to identify with those. Um, but those are, the, those are the intentions that give rise to um, suffering. Experience, speak or act with a peaceful mind. Uh, Tan Jeff translates that word as calm or bright mind but peaceful would the, the, the skillful intentions are uh, generosity, uh metta or loving kindness instead of ill will, and compassion instead of um, instead of uh, cruelty. Speak or act with a peaceful mind. This is where the Buddha I mentioned the Buddha said I'll I'll uh, abandon those um, Intentions that are for the benefit, or that are not for the benefit of myself and others, abandon abandon those that are for the detriment. That's a it's a, a very it's a hard it's a hard act uh, to pull off. It requires mindfulness. But he's pointing at the fact that the experience doesn't come to us on its own. It comes to us mediated through our reaction to it. So if we look at the next verses, he abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. That's interesting because i actually think that it's almost any kind of you know i'm blaming the world for the unpleasantness that we are experiencing you know um, these are examples of a corrupted mind right speaker after with a corrupted mind he she abused me attacked me defeated me robbed me for those not carrying on like this hatred ends well it's interesting because all he's saying is, not, it's not that you're, you've got something else going on. You're just not doing that action. You're just not complaining. She abused me, attacked me, robbed me. They're, they are causing global warming. They are doing this. They are doing that. Those are expressions of displeasure with the world, um, You know, our own aversion. One of the things that happens is that we project our own dissatisfaction with the world onto the world. And then we don't notice that we did it. So we think that it's, you know, the world is the way it is. That's pretty obvious. But we say, we sort of think, well, I'm more or less okay. The world's really a mess. Don't we sort of have that going? You know? And and we're projecting our own dissatisfaction out there on the world because the world couldn't be any different than it is, given... Yeah?
0: It's interesting because there's so much non-doing involved there, and yet there's also the concept of, of engagement, of skillful engagement. hmm So, holding all that in one container, I think, is um, an interesting thing to balance.
1: He says, hatred never ends through hatred. By non-hate alone does it end. This is an ancient truth. By non-hate, not by love, particularly, although I've heard it translated that way. It's just by non-hate, by doing something else besides being angry. Verse 223, he says, Conquer anger with non-anger. Conquer wickedness with goodness. Conquer stinginess with giving. And a liar with truth. Not with contention necessarily. But this, you know, we talk about practice. We'll talk about this, this some more too. But practice... Uh, w- you know, just living with non-hate ends hatred. You know, so when we notice aversion and anger and ill will coming up, just abandoning, shedding. We talked about in in the Gādami Sutta, uh, not being fettered by by aversion and anger and and those things. This next one is really. Many do not realize that we here must die. For those who realize this, quarrels end. If you're, if you're in a hospice environment, you usually don't quarrel with the person who's dying. They say, the sky is red, and you sort of say, you know, I, I can see how that might be. <laughs> you know, quarrels end in the face of, of, of death. And so we want to pretend like we're not already in hospice. You know, we sort of are in our way. Verse 129, all tremble at violence, all fear death. Seeing others as being like yourself, do not kill or cause other to kill, others to kill. But in the first chapter, even even more deeply, quarrels end, contention ends. There's a, a, a story that I've heard. It's a, it's a, I guess it's a... a I hate to use. I, I really feel uneasy using the word Hindu, but I guess it's brahmanical, or you know, one of the gods comes down and hangs around with people for a while, and then goes back up to the god realms, and all the other gods cluster around and say, "What's it like down there? What's the what's the strangest thing you saw?" And and the god said, I can't remember which one says, "Every all all humans are." subject to death, and none of them think it's going to happen to them. For those who realize this quarrel's end. Whoever lives focused on the pleasant, senses unguarded, Immoderate with food, lazy and sluggish, will be overpowered by Mara as a weak tree is bent in the wind. Whoever focused on the unpleasant, senses guarded, moderate with food, faithful and diligent, will not be overpowered by Mara. Mm. the metaphors here, as a weak tree is bent by the wind and as a stone mountain is unmoved by the wind. Not encouraging you to be, you know, unfeeling like a mountain, but unmoved by the wind. What others do or do not do is not of concern.
3: Please. Tony, what I'm seeing in some of this is the idea of reactivity, Mm-hmm. You know how we are reactive to experience, mm-hmm. um, and so it's the idea of of not reacting in a way that that causes us to to come into suffering, right? So that, for example, you know that the phrase of she abused me, attacked me, defeated me, etc. It's the idea of of not reacting with anger. We're not reacting with, with trying to push, push that away, right?
1: Yeah, and, and looking, you know, when, when, when we're complaining about the actions of others, we're usually not looking at the other, at, at the situation of the other. So, you know, if we look at the perpetrator with compassion and then try to alleve the suffering, alleviate the suffering of the other, it's a different response. It's a different um it's not it's not reactive in the same way right. not protective it's not based in those in the unskillful intentions
3: yeah but but even that that uh, verse about many do not realize that uh, we here must die mm-hmm. it's almost the idea of picking up an identity or holding on to an identity of a view and the view would be for example that someone is for example, attacking me. Oh, right. You know, yeah, it may
1: it and, may have and, nothing to do with you. Right,
3: and so being unmoved like a mountain, it it's not about me. Right,
1: right. right. Well, when it's we when that. someone is when we mm, think someone's attacking us, maybe it's just that they've had a bad day, or because we've all been there, and um, it may have nothing to do with you. And and generally doesn't. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's interpreting it in terms of, of me and myself and my own, me, me and mine. Yeah.
6: yeah. That's a question.
1: Please. I'm
6: just noticing in what you just
4: read, in the first uh, part of it, whoever lives focused on the pleasant. Yeah. And then in the second part, whoever lives focused on the unpleasant. Yeah. Now. Mm-hmm. Well, you were talking about that swing between mm-hmm. and the goal is to find the center
1: mm-hmm.
4: where we're not focused on the pleasant or the unpleasant. So I, I was just kind of confused about whoever lives focused on the unpleasant and se- senses guard. Well, let,
1: let, let's, let's, let's think about that for a minute because I'm not sure that the idea is to, is to be focusing on the center. But... but um, this is a theme that comes up over and over again. We'll encounter it uh, later this morning and this afternoon. Sometimes the Buddha talks about focusing on the foul rather than on the on the on the uh, the delightful. Um, I think this is a this is a, a skillful practice, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be looking for things that are physically revolting that are so foul and disgusting it just means that when we spend our time looking out for what we might want for what would be pleasant for us what we would like we think we're going to make ourselves happy by chasing what we want by chasing the pleasant things in life and avoiding the unpleasant things in life isn't that sort of how we do it? Or is it just me? <laughs> it's just me? You guys are so lucky. <laughs> you know, there's, there's this, this... And that's, that's a real core delusion. I mean, uh, making ourselves happy by chasing what we want. As Dr. Phil might say, how's that working for you? <laughs> you know, that's, that's our primary strategy, I think. And so, and so we spend our time, you know, scanning. What What could I want? You ever thumb through a catalog? <laughs> you know, I don't even have a desire yet. I'm just. It's sort of brewing, and I'm looking for a target. You know, looking for the pleasant, rather than the unpleasant. But,
5: uh, <clears throat> it always seems like. But is a big advocate for being disenCHANTed. He in, is, and to look at uh, the foul or the whatever is to disenchant, to take the veils off one's eyes. Once to, you
1: right, and the disen, the the, proce, the 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 progress from disenchantment is once you realize that whatever it is that you thought you were going to make yourself happy with is not going to really last. After a while, there's dispassion. Disenchantment with the, the prospect of, you know, whatever. A new president, a new car, a new job, a new partner, a new whatever. You know, being the solution to making us happy. Once, then there, there comes dispassion. And, and your heart doesn't leap out for those things or recoil from those things because the worst can come and it's usually not what we thought either you know focused on the pleasant senses unguarded you know just alert for the goodies immoderate with food lazy and sluggish will be overpowered by mara as a weak tree is bent in the wind of course because you know the attraction of pleasant under the delusion that the pleasant will make us happy. Focusing on the unpleasant. You now just to notice the downsides, because we don't usually notice the downsides of the stuff. Senses guarded moderate with food will not be overpowered as a stone mountain is unmoved by the wind.
5: It also, points to, it also points to the, the continual process that um, this practice entails.
1: It's continual process. Yeah.
5: Verse 81, as a...
1: As a, uh, we will come up with this later, a solid mass of rock is as a solid mass of rock is not moved by the wind. So a sage is not moved by praise or blame. So it's not just it's not just the lovely things in the world; it's the unlovely things that will drive our compulsion.
0: Um. So, so that the um, that the, that that delusion, that core delusion, uh, is is uh, I think it is hardwired, and that's what these the way you're sort of unpacking this really brings to my mind. And I don't know where this is, and perhaps you can uh, tell me or tell us when the Buddha says uh, this this path is like swimming swimming upstream. Mm-hmm. This is this is like going against. So the focusing on the pleasant, and and also what Victor said, the process. It's a swim. It's a it's a it's a going against what is what's deeply embedded. What's deeply. I think
1: <clears throat> I think a lot of the way we are is. Um, this is my take. I don't think the Buddha. But the, a lot of it is hardwired. It's built in. It serves our, you know, serves us evolutionarily. It helps us survive, but it doesn't help us not suffer. Okay. So, so the desire to be bawa tanha, which is one of the forms of of tanha of craving. You know, the the survival instinct. If if we didn't have it we're probably not here, <laughs> you know um, it's because we were looking out for ourselves and responding with fear uh, in the in the night um, but it may and it may be useful for survival, but it isn't necessarily useful for non suffering, and so the Buddhist path is the path of and towards to the cessation of, of dukkha, of dissatisfaction. Uh and dissatisfaction even with our survival instinct. Are we unhappy with that? Because it causes suffering? It seems to be the way we are. You know? I I, I don't know whether that addresses entirely what you were
0: well, it just, it just, this, this train was just brought up for me. Yes, it does. It does partially. And what it brought up was that also this sense of, um, like, what is looking at the unpleasant mean? Mm-hmm. It means it's going against the stream of. It does, going against the stream. Of, yeah. And going against the
1: stream, it's one of the, one of the verses in here that we will actually land on at some point. But going against the stream is part of... The, that's why right effort is in the Eightfold Path. It doesn't just happen. I mean, effort is energy and intention and, um, and some consistency. Um, going with the flow, if it feels good, do it. You know, that one. That's not the Dharma. <laughs> <laughs> it was good in the seventies.
6: Hmm?
1: It was good in the seventies, right. <laughs> yeah. So so
3: coming back to what you started with, that the whole thing about the, the Dhamma, you know, the aroused persistence is what that brings to mind. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: As and not lazy. Right. It's in the it's in the, the Gautami Sutta. Whoever is defiled and devoid of self-control and truth, yet wears the saffron robe, is unworthy of the saffron robe. Whoever has purged the defilements is self-controlled, truthful, and established in virtue, is worthy of the saffron robe. Saffron robe here being, you know, it, it does address monks and nuns who actually wear a, a robe, but it also metaphorically can address the pretension to, to spiritual uh, commitment, to spiritual achievement. And it's interesting, you know, in, in Western culture, and it's really deep in Western culture, um... We have the the notion of original sin in in the, the religious discussion, has sort of seeped out into the culture generally, and we you know people often are uh, think of themselves as flawed. There's a lot of self. Anybody got a, a real active inner critic going? You know, there's the story of the Dalai Lama who was uh, years ago was. Asked the question about uh, self-criticism, and he said oh, it's just a trivial little, you know, thing that pops up once in a while. And his translator leaned over to him and said, "Not in the West." Um, you know, we have this sense that somehow we're flawed, and it makes sense then you you have to be saved by something outside of yourself. Whereas in the East, in the in the in The the assumption is that what causes us to be acting bad instead of being um, inherently flawed is the visitation of the defilements, Uh, greed, ill will, um, and, of course, delusion. Um, And so with the purging of the defilements... Then we're freed from those things. And of course the purging of the defilements, things that only we can do ourselves. Self-controlled and truthful. And well established in virtue. You know, we're we're back to the you know, do no avoiding evil and and practicing what's skillful. Self controlled and truthful, not just sitting in meditation, but well-established in virtue, established, is worthy of the saffron robe. The next two the next two verses are pretty interesting. Those who consider the inessential to be essential and see the essential as inessential do not reach the essential, living in the field of wrong intention. Those who know the essential to be essential and the inessential as inessential reach the essential, living in the field of right intention. I don't think it's a mistake that in the Eightfold Path, the first element is view, right view, or understanding. And the next is intention, right intention. Because intention flows from understanding. You act in terms of how you understand things to be. So the cultivation of right intention also winds up affecting, I mean, right understanding also affects right intention. If you think someone or something is going to hurt you, you are likely to respond defensively. If you think something is going to help you, you will respond differently. So you're understanding your perception of things. We talked about it in the Skandas, It has to do with that that labeling element, where you identify what's going on. If you if you identify as you identify the way things are, so your your intention will flow. So if you think you're going to make yourself happy by chasing what you want, well, guess what, you'll be chasing the pleasant things, you know. Um, so when we have a teaching from the Buddha that that's not going to happen. You're, you know, chasing what you what you want is not what will make you know. What's pleasant is not going to bring you peace. Well, we have to decide whether we buy that or not. I was that was underlying that that thing that I read from Bhikkhu Bodhi the, at, at the beginning. So living in the, in the field of wrong intention comes from wrong view. Who considers the inessential to be essential? Not seeing things as they are will lead to wrong intention. Delusion will lead to wrong intention. If you're acting out of delusion, an interpretation of the way things are that is not, in fact, a representation of the way things are then how surprised can you be when things don't turn out the way you thought they were going to? You know. Wisdom gives rise to right intention. Or insight gives rise to right intention. You know, there's there, um, the translation of Panya as, as uh, wisdom makes I don't know the word wisdom sort of sounds like a a body of knowledge somehow, whereas insight feels more like something that uh, arises, that you do, you know, occurs. So I sort of prefer insight to, to wisdom. As rain penetrates an ill thatched house, so lust penetrates an uncultivated mind. As rain does not penetrate a well-fetched house, so lust does not penetrate a well-cultivated mind. What are you talking about with mind here? A cultivated mind? What might that be? A cultivated or uncultivated, restrained, and an ill-fetched house. The metaphor there for what? You know, for... I'm sorry? Yeah, for, and for watching, for paying attention. Um, what he talks about earlier, focused on the unpleasant, senses guarded, moderate with food, faithful and diligent. The well thatched house. Uh, and, and a, you know, a well-cultivated mind. In this in this case, I think, you know, intention makes makes sense there too. Just mindful. I'm sorry. Just being mindful. Yeah, it's being aware. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And seeing desire arising as desire, and knowing that, you know, Achan Jumian used a, a, had a great metaphor. Um, for desire. He said it's like a moth and the flame. The moth sees the flame, flies at the flame, everything else is dark, can't see anything but the flame, and also doesn't see its own compulsion, the nature of its own compulsion to fly at the flame, its relationship to the object of its desire. It doesn't it's unaware of that. So when you see it as that, and you recognize that this pleasant Thing will not result in any lasting satisfaction. That's when disillusionment and dispassion and ultimately freedom comes from because you're not fettered by what you cling to.
3: Yeah? Tony, also in that metaphor of the moth and the flame, the moth doesn't see the danger of the flame either.
1: That's right. That's right. So mindfulness, you can be mindful, you can describe yourself as being mindful if you're aware of the flame, and you can describe the flame, the object of desire, in exquisite detail. And if you've been, you know, I don't know, shopping for a car and reading all the ads and all the stuff, you can you can be really aware of the details, but that doesn't, you're not noticing your own... Longing, your own wanting, and it's, it's noticing that internal thing as well. One who does evil grieves in this life, grieves in the next, grieves in both worlds. Seeing one's own defiled acts brings grief and affliction. One who makes merit rejoices in this life, rejoices in the next, rejoices in both wor- worlds. Seeing one's own pure acts brings joy and delight. Well that's a tough one in this culture because don't we sort of think if we're pointing out certainly to others our own pure acts it's sort of you know tooting our own horn bragging. We don't usually do that. You know we're usually um, we don't share our good our good uh, actions, the things that give us joy. I mean, if you think back over the things in your life, just a couple of things, the particular moments of joy, and you know, often they have to do with actions that you took that were pretty cool. But we just don't bring them up because it sort of is not... It's not modest. It's There's this bragging stuff. And it doesn't accord with our, our negative, you know, with our sense that we're flawed somehow. Yeah.
5: It's kind of a tough uh, balancing act because you know, modesty is a form of conceit. Shyness, mm-hmm. a form mm-hmm. of conceit. It's just the other side of the coin. Of bragging, it's it's still sort of the negative of paying attention to yourself, of of sort of a hyper awareness of self. Right. So it's uh, I don't think we have a good model in this society in which to just
1: we don't. I don't. I think you're right. We don't have a model, and of course it's it's it is a balancing act. It's a koan. It's a koan that we answer with our life. We answer with the way we live you know it's not a matter of oh there's a right way or a wrong way but seeing one's own pure acts brings joy and delight if you recall an action that you have done that gives you pleasure to recall yeah
0: i just don't see that it's necessarily to do with bragging or not bragging because those kinds of acts of joy can be done silently
1: they can be mm-hmm. But, but we don't usually talk about them and share them with others. Mm. And it can be a source of joy to others mm. to talk about something that you've done that was particularly generous and selfless and spontaneous. That's, that could be inspirational to others. That's yes. sort of maybe it's not. Tricky. Mm-hmm. Yeah.: Carolyn,.
0: There's, um, th- that reminds me, your you're touching on this topic reminds me of uh, a, a day that Bhante Gunaratana gave here. And he said, at, at the end of the day, he said, if there's one thing that I would leave you with, um, if there's one practice, it's just this practice of recalling your good deeds. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but mm-hmm. that was the gist that he made a point of saying, you know, this, this whole... This day, if you get one thing from it, take away.
1: And and it's, it's interesting because that really is the heart of karma. One who does evil grieves in this life, grieves in the next, grieves in both worlds. So actually if the intention is unskillful and we're smacking at something or acting in ways that in retrospect, we probably would wish we had not done. Um, we're not experiencing pleasure. We're, it's not pleasant to recall our uh, unskillful actions. We grieve in this life, grieve in the next. And, and when we have, have done well, um, to recall our, our good deeds... Gives us pleasure and is inspirational, and and that's the fulfillment of karma. Yeah,
4: I just wanted to say that uh, you know in, in Southeast Asia uh, there's some practice that if a person is about to die, they're you know on the threshold of death, and uh, there are uh, like maybe some relatives or whatever that come around, and, or even they might have some monks there uh, uh, by the uh, deathbed. What they try to do is try to get that person to. Uh, uh, think about the good things that they've done in their life, you know, and like there's even a meta or a, a, a sutta for that, you know, in which they, which they uh, uh, talk to the uh, dying person to uh, try to alleviate uh, their suffering as much as possible within the moments that they have left, and uh, it's very important because that to them is is because it's like if their last moment is is where they're thinking of a pure deed or a pure thought or a pure think of something that they had said to someone <clears throat> when they die that is propelled into the next or will help them propel into the next existence to you know, mm-hmm. make their existence a much better place than uh, otherwise.
1: Well that could be true even by, by contemplating your own good deeds this morning. We'll make this afternoon. Will condition our, our being this afternoon. <clears throat> so you don't have to wait till you're <laughs> in a hospice environment to give this a try. Well,
4: see, that's the thing, it too, It's like uh, if you realize that you're living, it's a momentary life and death. Mm-hmm. Every moment,
1: you're being yeah. reborn. Be the next two verses are, are just an, uh, further further on that. He who does evil is tormented in this life, tormented in the next, tormented in both worlds. He's tormented knowing I have done evil. Reborn in realms of woe, that's the torment. He is tormented all the more. One who makes merit is delighted in this life, delighted in the next, delighted in both worlds. He or she is delighted knowing I have made merit. Reborn in realms of bliss, that's delighted. I've, she delights all the more. So this is just, you know, a, a formulation of, of karma, and also it, re- it relates really closely to intention, which the Buddha said, karma is intention. You know, mm, the um, it, at the at the time of the Buddha uh, in the Brahmanical uh, religion the brahmins were were the ones who were to keep the universe on track and the way you kept it from going off track was the the correct performance of ritual so the 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 uh, sacrifices were made and the proper uh, mantras were intoned and the proper behavior was and what was important was the precision with which you performed those rituals and I don't know whether there was a rain dance but you know the idea is that you keep things on track by the correct performance of ritual that was the, that was the and the that was the the charge of the brahmins and that was how they maintained their position in the social hierarchy because they were the ones who kept things together and the word that was used to describe the 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 correct performance of um, these rituals was karman and and the buddha took took the word and said well yeah karma and d- the the future happiness sadness depends on karma but it doesn't have to do with what you do it's the intention so he flipped the meaning over and and said karma is intention he was very explicit about that and so what we're talking about here is the karma of uh, of intention, the current, one who makes merit is delighted in this life. You know, you you enjoy the prospect of doing something generous, something inspired by meta or compassion. Delighted in prospect, delighted as you're doing it, good in the middle, good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. Then looking back, she's delighted, knowing I have made merit. Reborn in realms of bliss, she delights all the more, and that's the, you know, the experience and the re- re- recollection of one's intention. Laurie,
3: you could bring that into just changing the the phrase "this life" into "this moment." Yes, and then it would be the next moment. Yeah, and so it doesn't have to. Say, hey, we're talking about That's the correct. next life, but it's the karma. It's the whole intentional That's and conditionality right. of each moment that comes next. How That's we right. act in this moment—that's right—or or the intention for this moment. I think so. Conditions the next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right.
1: One who recites many teachings, but being negligent, doesn't act accordingly like a cowherd counting others' cows does not attain the benefits of, contem- of the contemplative life. I, I, I like it when the, the metaphors show up with cowherds <laughs> um, counting others' cows. But, it's, but really he's saying it's, we may even have an understanding but if you don't act it out, being negligent doesn't act accordingly, doesn't attain the benefits of the contemplative life. The benefits being peace and um, non hatred, a pleasant abiding. one who recites but a few teachings yet lives according to the Dharma abandoning passion ill will and delusion aware and with mind well freed not clinging in this life or the next attains the benefits of the contemplative life so it's not so much that you be a scholar or anything just abandoning, and I, I just I really appreciate the word abandoning here. Abandoning passion, ill will, and delusion. Just abandoning greed, hatred, and delusion—the three poisons, of course—and lives according to the Dharma. You know, living according to the Dharma, practices according to the Dharma. It's the same thing. When your life is your practice, when every every uh, moment is your practice, every, that's living in accordance with with the Dharma. Abandoning passion, ill will, and delusion. Where does that leave you when you've when you've abandoned? Desire, longing, and ill will. You know, renunciation is letting those impulses go. Letting them, there's a tendency to think that when a desire arises that we've got just a couple of choices. We either act it out or we suppress it out of aversion and you know the dharma path is to just be aware aware and with mind well freed not clinging in this life or the next so it doesn't take you know extensive knowledge of the teachings um, lives according to the to the dharma. So that first that first chapter has a has a, there's a there's a little story there. You know that the mind all begins in mental activity that it's not the world that brings troubles to us. Now, what do we expect? The world is the way it is. We don't like it or we like it. We like parts of it. We don't like other parts of it. When we complain about it and complain about what we encounter, we suffer. Chasing after what we want, we are not successful. We'll be overpowered by Mara as a, a weak tree is bent in the wind. So I like the I like the uh, the first chapter presents um, uh, the contrast, and I think that a lot of the Dhammapada is is presented in stark contrast between the the successful and the the unsuccessful, between the the path to Nibbana and and not. So, any other thoughts about the? Uh about the first the first chapter at all how did Dio turn to the Bible? oh he yeah he he says um it's in his introduction he says that it, you know the first the first uh See if I can. Oh, it's the introduction. The Dhammapada, he says, um, if we compare the beginning of the Dhammapada with the opening of lines of the Bible which emphasize God's role as creator and, by extension, our reliance on God's power, in contrast, the first two verses of the Dhammapada emphasize the power of the human mind in shaping our lives and the importance and effectiveness of a person's own actions and choices. So our salvation comes from our own actions alone. There's no external source that can that can uh, that can do it for us. We have to do it ourselves. And this, um, you know, the the uh, incrustations of the defilements we have to clear out ourselves and we clear it out by seeing which is where our practice comes by our seeing and, and insight into the nature of our own compulsion to make things worse go ahead can you elaborate a bit on
4: um, by noticing the thing you first read Mm-hmm.
6: hmm
4: And i oh, I need some clarity on that in the sense of do I no longer uh, am I no longer passionate about uh, civil liberty? Am I no mm. longer passionate
6: about world peace? Am I no longer passionate about these things?
1: I'd, I'd say, given your description, don't do anything drastic. Um, you know when you talk about a passion for social justice there's the, you know that's a description of a whole collection of responses and situations so you just, let's get smaller. well it's, if, if we're angry at a perpetrator of injustice you know whatever we might do out of that anger is probably... Well, let's see. Hatred is not... Never ends through hatred. So anger and aversion is not going to be the path to ending social injustice. It'll just add more anger, crankiness into the mix. So what is the passion... Now, you can have ideas about social justice. You can have ideas, and they can be pretty abstract. If you, if, you, if you look what the people at the Fed are talking about, they think that social welfare will be enhanced by some pretty exotic financial manipulation. And, of course, those things are all the subject of a lot of debate. We have ideas about how things ought to be. We do. And those ideas we cling to. And they aren't necessarily about what's in our immediate experience. All of us here, for all of us here, the first noble truth is operative. There's dissatisfaction, deep dissatisfaction with life, with the experience of life is dissatisfying. To the extent that it's dissatisfying, um, or, or actually, maybe to put it this way, the extent that you, that you want satisfaction or you're looking for satisfaction, you're going to be dissatisfied. You know, we're trying to make things the way we want them to be. That's chasing after what we want. And we will spend our life engaged in that. And that means that we, someone, a child, can come to us with asking for attention, and we can be so consumed in uh, our anger over a cloture vote in the Senate that we don't even see them you know our compassion for each other in this room you know, we, we might not arise because we're we have concerns here we are sitting in a room very pleasant just lovely company, and we can, you know, we can can be living in the heaven realms and have the soundtrack from hell, and be totally distracted. And a lot of that soundtrack, you know, it arouses passion. Um, Was it that Fugs song from the 60s, Kill for Peace? You know? Very near, near or middle, or very far east, kill, kill, kill for peace. Um, you know, our own passion can lead us astray. Compassion as a response to the perceived, the experience, the perceived suffering in the world, not so much. So, passion for an ideology, for an idea about how things ought to be, tricky. My experience, just my experience, Victor. Does, is that helpful? Oh, and I was just—I
4: would say so—to have a passion for hospice work.
1: So, yeah.
5: it, so passion. Could you then elaborate on what passion
1: means? Yeah, in, in this in this situation, I think we're talking about uh, um, you know passionate, craving, wanting, longing, you know. Uh, not the same as, as uh, a commitment to a calling like um, uh, com- something coming from compassion. If you encounter you know if you encounter someone if you encounter a child crying, you just respond. You say, "Are you okay?" You know, you. It just happens automatically and it comes out of out of compassion that's not the same thing as i'm going to build a school in every district of whatever or i've got you know a, a passion for the arts or you know those kinds of things it's a, it's not coming from wanting for self is that is that helpful yes yeah okay
5: part of it seems to uh, involve. It, it it's a continuation of practice. It's much more outward, and there's still a need to um, try to cultivate not um, wanting a specific outcome.
1: <clears throat> well, when you focus on intention, the outcome is not... You know, if you're a surgeon, you occasionally things aren't going to go well.
5: Right. You're but you surgeon, won't feel you remorse if, you
1: don't. Your, if your intention was pure and you brought all your skill to bear. You're not going to look back and say, oh, you won't feel regret and remorse. So the outcome is not related to the in- intention, unless, I mean... It's, it is related to the intention. Your intention is what you imagine the outcome to be. That's how you can recognize it. What am I trying to accomplish here?
5: I'd like to ask a question uh, where you started on the comparison between, or how Gill compares this between uh, the sort of the Bible versus uh, mm-hmm. Dharmapada. The, with the Bible, there's an outward mm-hmm. element that one. I'm not very familiar with with the Bible, Western religion. My brother, however, we always have this these conversations. He's intimately um, familiar, and it's always an an external expression of in a way fidelity towards this entity out there. And the work that we do here in Buddhism, as far as looking at intention, right livelihood, a full path, et cetera, it's a very you're in charge of your own karma, basically, where on the other side, uh, Catholicism, if you will, it's you don't have to do any of this stuff. You just have to somehow um, surrender to a higher God and they will, it will absolve, solve your dilemma, sins, mm-hmm. I don't know, whatever and I, I, I don't understand how that works for
1: them ah what others do or do not do there's no concern i, I yeah. that. <laughs> but but he's my brother <laughs> and I then, him. Then, and, you then know, I don't then want to you're right him. well you know one's brother one should should you know look for uh, opportunities for compassionate expression look for the suffering There's, there's. Uh, it, I remember Jack Cornfield saying, telling a story. Somebody who, quoting someone who said, "You know, my family loves it when I'm a Buddha and doesn't like it so much when I'm a Buddhist."
0: <laughs> 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 you know.
1: So I, I want to move through some of the themes, and we'll we'll do, we'll do some before lunch. I, 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 I'm going to back up a little bit and, and just reprise here. Um, talking about uh, restraint, abandonment, uh, renunciation. One of the one of the themes of the of that's that's throughout the Dhammapada. Um, if by giving up a lesser happiness one could experience a greater happiness, a wise person would renounce the lesser. So abandonment of, of passion, abandonment of ill will, renouncing what we think we're going to gain. Some people find uh, anger you know, really uh, makes them feel empowered. We had a Secretary of State a few years ago who found anger as his primary m- mode of expression and it cost him his... His position, because when you treat everybody with anger, they get cranky back. Um, yeah. hmm? uh Kevin Shelley. He was remember he was our Secretary of State, and he he had to resign. And part of it was because he he found anger a very empowering feeling, strong it may, to be to, to do that anger. But to abandon because he thought he would. Of what he would get from that. And by abandoning, so giving up the lesser happiness, the lesser whatever you think you're going to get. Um, and even the gods envy those who are intent on meditation and delight in the peace of renunciation. This, this theme of the peace of renunciation is the same as in the Gautami Sutta is unfettered unfettered. Don't give yourself to negligence. Don't devote yourself to sensual pleasure. Vigilant and absorbed in meditation, one, absor- one, one obtains abundant happiness. And it's interesting. He's talking about happiness in the absence of being devoted to sense pleasures. And by sense pleasures i i you know I understand the pleasures of the mind as well, the satisfaction of uh, um, opinions that agree with mine and um, certainly the aesthetic ex- expressions but don 't devote yourself to sensual pleasure uh, one, ob- one obtains one attains happiness in the absence of pleasant experience. Whoops! Delightful are forests where the public does not delight. There, the passion-free delight, not seeking sensual pleasures. That one's pretty good. Because First of all, he's saying, this is not common. you know, most people where the public delight, the public delight. Where does the public delight? I mean, you can see where the public delights. It's out there in the media.
6: <laughs>
1: the force where the passion-free delight. They delight without passion and the peace not seeking sensual pleasure. Yeah. I think there's a
5: balance between... I think individuals get caught up in the... when they hear not seeking sensual pleasure to uh, uh, kind of a relinquishing or just... Uh,
1: Resigning. Resigning. Uh,
5: um, a, a pushing away of sensual mm-hmm. pleasure that comes and goes. I mean, I'm
1: not. I'm not talking about. You know. Once again, uh, the word renunciation has, for me, it's got this um, sense of renouncing, pushing yeah, it's away. It's an active. And that, which is why I like the word abandon a little bit better. I find abandon. Um,
5: you abandon things that are not useful. Mm-hmm. Shedding. Mm-hmm.
1: Letting go, yeah,
3: yeah, much easier. Um... Tony. Yeah. Also, I think the key word there is seeking. Uh huh. Right. It's it's not the sensual pleasure in it and of itself. It's the it's the seeking of it. Not
1: seeking, because because pleasant experience will come, and you're not supposed. You don't need to say, "Oh, pleasant experience. I don't want any of this." You know, our experience with sense pleasures, with pleasant experience, is more frequently that we pollute it with wanting more of it or, or not wanting it to end. I, I remember when, when I was uh, pretty little, I can't remember how little, but I, I was given for dessert a piece of, in my memory, was this unbelievably good chocolate mousse kind of thing. And I thought I, w- I wanted this to last forever, so I was taking such small bites that I could barely taste it at all. <laughs> you know. Um, so we will pollute pleasant experience. I, 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 uh, John Tarrant writes about how he was uh, watching a sunset and he wanted to share it with other people. And so in his mind, he wasn't even able to Appreciate the sunset. I had a similar experience once. I set a fire, and my wife was had gone to the store for something. And you know, if you build fires a lot, the the first rush is just to be just incredibly beautiful and wonderful. And it was just great. And all I was saying was, she's got to get back because he's got to see us. you know. And you, we pollute our own experience of pleasant with clinging, with wanting it to last longer, be different, whatever. So it's not the pleasant experience, is, but it's that, you're right, it's the seeking, trying to transmute it into something transcendent that will last forever and save us from a lifetime of unhappiness. You know. And of course, the unpleasant, we, we are always trying to get rid of that. Bhikkhu Bodhi says that we spend our time trying to increase pleasant experience, decrease unpleasant experience, and figure out how all of this relates to me. (laughs) The person obsessed with gathering flowers, insatiable for sense pleasures, is under the sway of death. This comes from a chapter on flowers. Some of, the, some of the chapters are organized by theme. Some this just by the metaphor of flowers. It's under the sway of death because pleasant and unpleasant come and go. If you are attached to pleasant, you, and you get your, you get the obsessed with gathering flowers because then flowers beautiful as they are are transitory and so if you're obsessed with them you're under the sway of the forces that are in play in regard to flowers in regard to all of us obsessed with insatiable for sense pleasures can't get enough anybody had enough? yeah we can't get enough There's always just a little more. It's my experience. Um, And it's under the sway of death because they are transitory. Peaceful in body, peaceful in speech, the bhikkhu peaceful and well-concentrated who has rejected the world's bait is called one at peace. I love the notion of the world's bait. What a great, you know, the world's bait. Those are the, you know, those are the things that we, well, what's bait? It's the stuff on the hook that we bite at and then the next thing we know we're being hauled in. (laughs) Um, Rejected the world's bait. Can we walk away from it? Can we just abandon it, shed it, let go? You know peaceful and well concentrated means mind not wavering not and that's 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 the result of practice the mind that's stable and not fluttery and wavery who has rejected the world's bait is one at peace because you know not batted around if we are at the whim of desire and aversion that arise in us in regard to pleasant and unpleasant experience, how much freedom do we have, really? Not, not, a, not a huge amount, because if the experience is pleasant, we're stuck wanting more of it. If it's unpleasant, we've got to make it go away. Don't follow an inferior way. Don't live with negligence. Do not follow a wrong view. Don't be engrossed in the world. Hmm. Engrossed in the world. It's hard not to be engrossed in the world. Try to think of stuff that is not about the world. I'm going to become otherworldly. What are you going to think about you know, our mind is filled with this world because that's where our experience is. You know. So the issue isn't not to have thoughts of the world in our mind, but it's our relationship to them. Okay. Be engrossed in them, be clinging to them, holding to them. They're going to come. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to uh, stop. The mind, you probably have noticed when you sit to meditate, you know, the mind will continue to generate thinking, generate its thoughts. Um, But the relationship to those thoughts as they arise and pass, that's where our freedom is. Don't live with negligence. It means always be alert. Be, you know, don't follow a wrong view. And the wrong view, of course, you know, the distortions of perception are to see permanence where there's no permanence, to see satisfaction, the possibility of satisfaction where there's no possibility of satisfaction. Um to see an entity where there is no entity where there's just process and to see the unlovely as the lovely so following wrong view you know we think that prettiness is inherent in the object and it is inherent in our relationship to it So don't, be, don't follow wrong view and don't be engrossed in the world. Surrounded, I love this, uh, surrounded by craving, people run around like frightened hares seeking dispassion. A monastic should dispel craving. I love it. The people are seeking freedom. In other places he talks about fish flopping around in water. Or without water, um, and, and interestingly, says a monastic should dispel craving, not resist it, not batter it away or suppress it, just allow it to evaporate through observing and watching. It's that you know we don't our choices are not just to act out or suppress. Um, Craving, but to observe it and learn how it works—you know—to watch how the story in our mind and the vision of what we're going to get and what's going to happen—you know—shows up, and how physically we respond to that—you know—the emotion that that shows up, the physical relationship to the story that's going on, Um, and when we study that. You know, if you actually pay attention in your body, you would look for a place in your body where there's tension. As soon as you find it, what happens? It relaxes. You know, it's when you're not noticing it that it that it keeps hanging in there. Um, surrounded by craving, people run around like frightened hares. Well. Are we surrounded by craving here? He he seems to be describing 2,500 years ago and they didn't even have gallerias. (laughs) Surrounded by craving. It comes into your mailbox. (laughs) You you can't stop the catalogs. You can't. I tried. You can't. They say click here and make it go away. It doesn't work. can't stop it. Surrounded by craving, people run around like frightened hares. And, you know, that's the metaphor. What is a frightened hare? I mean, they have got good moves. They really do. They don't just run straight. They, they're, they're running around like frightened hares, seeking dispassion. Restraint of the eye is good. Good is restraint of the ear. Restraint of the nose is good. Good is restraint of the tongue. Restraint of the body is good. Good is restraint of speech. Restraint of the mind is good. Good is restraint in all circumstances. Restrained in all circumstances, the bhikkhu is released from all suffering. So there you go. No problem. <laughs> so it's, my tai chi, chi, t- tai chi teacher used to say, it looks so easy, but how do you do it? <laughs> you know. This is restraint of, the, of the, the different senses. Restraint of the mind. Really tough. Because what can we, and restraint and the mind here, we're talking about what? I think, I still think that, that it makes sense to me to interpret that as restraining our intention, restraining our impulse, the sankaras, not just and the clinging to our perceptions, the clinging to, to pleasant experience, restraint of the mind. And and what tool do we have to do that? The mind. <laughs> so it's 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 not so easy. <laughs> But right understanding yields right intention. So hopefully as we as we proceed through with the with the contemplation of what's in the Dhammapada, we get a sense of what the Buddha was pointing at. And, and this is the most the most commonly read collection of the Buddha's teachings. Restrained in all circumstances, the bhikkhu is released from all suffering. Not picking up the bait. It's, it's not... Uh, for people who have agitated thoughts and intense passion and who are focused on what's pleasant, craving grows more and more. Indeed, they strengthen their bonds. If you're focusing on what's pleasant... You're, you know, you're looking for something to grab onto. I, I notice that when I thumb through catalogs. I've got my catalogs. you know I have <laughs> they, they, these people know that I like pens, <laughs> and they, they send me pens, and I'll go through the catalogs. But I'm saved because some of these pens are thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. so I, that saves me. <laughs> But some of them are not so much. So I I have them. But, you know, and I I know what I'm doing when I sit down with that catalog. I'm, you know, focused on what's pleasant. Well, let's see what's in here. I'm, you know, craving grows more and more. Just by looking for the pleasant, as opposed to for those who delight in calming their thoughts. they are talking about delight in that. Delight, always mindful, and cultivate a focus on what's unpleasant. That doesn't mean, like I say, it doesn't mean that you have to focus on, you know, what's going to turn your stomach. You don't have to read the first section of the Times to, <laughs> to find what's unpleasant. It, it It's just directing your attention to the unpleasant side of things as well as the pleasant because they're both they both come and, they come and go and usually without our control usually the unpleasant shows up and the pleasant shows up some more of this some less of that when we look for the pleasant we think we're going to make ourselves happy by getting that stuff that's what's going to satisfy us so the buddha here is suggesting or the commentators, the people who've assembled these verses, are suggesting that by at least keeping a balance and focusing more on what's unpleasant, recognizing that um, you know, cultivating dispassion, certainly disillusionment, will bring an end to craving and will cut Mara's bonds. Yeah?
4: Um, this relates uh, to a, uh, something that happened to me uh, Last spring, I was in uh, Sri Lanka doing a retreat down there, and uh, uh, the uh, chief monkey asked me, "Well, how, how's your meditation going?" And I told him, you know, that I'd, um, it was going okay for the most part, but I was my mind was being consumed by these thoughts that I had toward my ex-wife, and uh, you know, well, I had just gone through a divorce, and it was pretty pretty nasty. I mean, uh, it, it, I kept I kept thinking uh, about uh the bad things about her you know and i was just completely my mind was just completely consumed by that and uh i thought about it all the time i mean it got to the point where my my stomach was upset you know i had to take roll aids a lot you know and i was getting these tension headaches you know especially in the back of my neck you know i mean it was just really tight hurt very painful and uh well, anyway uh he says okay uh this is uh, what you need to do He says. uh Forget about the vipassana for a while. When you go and do a meditation walk, do, do your me, uh, meditation on uh, loving kindness, and, and particularly direct your loving kindness toward your ex-wife. And uh, you know, I thought loving kindness. I you know I don't want to be I don't want to be uh, doing that with her. You know, I'd rather be strangling her, <laughs> and, and I don't holler on i wouldn 't do that, but uh, anyway, I took a suggestion you know, and, and like I went doing my walks, and even when I would do my sitting before I got into my regular sitting you know i would I would you know do that meditation and uh, like you know may she be happy, may she be peaceful maybe may she be free from suffering and it was like a mantra of doing it over and over and over again i mean there was like i mean like you you, you do a, a lengthy retreat and you 're like you 're looking at about maybe. Uh, 18 hours of uh, meditation, and config- you figure that each hour you start your meditation with that loving-kindness thing, you know. I mean, it, it, it's very, very powerful. And over a period of time, I'm not saying it was just like that, but over a period of time, the, those feelings of anger and ill-will and hostility toward my wife, you know, gradually began to subside.
1: You know, there's, there's a, a – when we, we wonder how to initiate change – It's often an issue how to initiate change. I'm reminded of um, the fact that the Oregon Trail is still there. You can go and see it. Google it. They'll show you pictures of it. There's the ruts going across the prairie, over the mountains, where the covered wagons are deep. You know, there are two of them going right... They're still there. That was our national habit. You know, how we... uh, got west. But we've sort of replaced that with I-80. You know, now our national habit is I-80. It's just a habit. But the way we abandoned the Oregon Trail was not by trying to cover it over. It's still there. It's, the traces are still there. But if you initiate a new habit, if in this case um, the repetition of of loving-kindness phrases and the, the effort to incline the intention in a different way. Change, change happens just because you're doing something different. You're doing diff- What you do is, uh, that's who, who you are. I mean, that's what's going on. That's the practice, is what you're doing, whatever you're doing. You can be practicing greed if you're, if you're spending all your time thumbing through Catalogs or being ambitious in the workplace—that's um, what you're practicing. You're cultivating that. What you do, you cultivate what you do. And so the idea is to just, you know, initiate activity. You know, practice on on the uh, on cultivating. Yeah, please.
2: I have a question. Um, I'm fairly new at this. In fact, I've never even seen this book before. That's how new I am. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have a question. I can understand on the loving kindness meditation that this gentleman just (laughs) talked about. Sounds like good medication to me. Um, But I don't understand the part about focusing on the
1: unpleasant. Right. And it's, like I say, it doesn't mean it has to be disgusting. (laughs) You know, just it's not looking for the pleasant to satisfy us. Usually what we do is we look for the silver lining. The silver lining is just the edge. If there's a cloud, there's a cloud. You know. So when we focus just on the pleasant, we sort of delude ourselves into thinking the unpleasant isn't there. Pleasant and unpleasant come and go. It's like the weather. And we don't really control it. We like to think we do, but... Maybe not so much. If we, if so the idea is to recognize the unpleasant as well as the pleasant. And our tendency is to just look for what's going to make us happy. So we're looking for the pleasant. We're focusing on the pleasant. And when we do, what was that line about craving growing? Oh, I'm never going to find it. Okay. Okay. Because things are mixed. Some things are pleasant, some things... And our experience is unpleasant and pleasant. And so our tendency is to say, unpleasant, get rid of it. This suggestion here is, let's just let's look at it. If our reaction to it is aversion, we're trying to make it go away, that's, uh, that, that in itself is making it worse. You've already got the unpleasant situation, and then we're clenching up against it. So we're making it worse. So, so just to, to be open to the unpleasant as well as to the pleasant, and the focusing on the pleasant tends to feed our our desire, our craving. So that's that's what he's pointing at. Yeah,
6: uh, it's important for me to uh, remember that uh, the Buddha was not always the Buddha; that he was Prince Siddhartha hanging around with dancing girls, beautiful palaces, all that stuff. And I'm sure everybody knows the story of him watching these beautiful dancing girls um, in some party of some sort. And uh, as the evening goes on and, and uh, they all fall asleep in the hall, and he was still awake, and these uh, beautiful dancing girls um, were uh, in all kinds of um, um, unpleasant postures laying all around on the floor, drooling uh, in their sleep, etc. And And so the Buddha, in all these things when he's talking about um, the passion of the senses and all, he's he's speaking from his own direct experience oh, he's okay. not a pendant you know he's not a bullshit artist he's he's speaking from his right. experience yeah and 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 then as him as the great physician of the overcoming of suffering he's he's being extremely practical he's just saying look this is the way to do it you know, you don't want to suffer. Here's how to get out of suffering. That's, you know, it, it's practical. You know, it, um, is, it is practical. It's if, not metaphysical. You know, if you have a headache, it takes an Advil if you want. You know, etc. etc. It's it's a it's an extremely direct, mm-hmm. compassionate and um, practical uh, way. Yeah. At least that's that's why how I appreciate all sure. this. Sure coming from that position. Yeah, yeah.
1: This verse here, with the 36 streams of craving, and we're talking about the six sense bases and different and and six relationships to it, flowing mightily towards anything pleasing, the person of wrong views is carried away on the current of lustful intent. And this is, you no, know, is this how does this describe how you know our experience is? Our attention flows towards anything pleasing. Our attention flows to you know, the person of wrong views is carried away on the currents of lustful intent. So intent follows the view again. So a person of wrong views, the idea that those think those pleasing things are going to lead to our happiness if we can attain them catch them get them grasp them hold them the person of wrong views is carried away on the currents of lustful intent so yeah
2: i think i have an experience of that happening this morning i thought the whole baseball thing was over and i could just rest <laughs> not wear orange and black, and ah, be done with it, you know, I was excited. And and so then what happens is tickets go on sale (laughs) for 2011. And I'm thinking, you know what? My sales are not what they usually are. In fact, they are not very good right now. I really need to conserve money. And I went on a bicycle ride, and I'm looking in the paper, and, you know, tickets go on sale shit. You know, and I really want to be there in the spring, right? And I'm but I really shouldn't spend the money right now. Well, you know what? I gave in. And I bought some tickets. And they were a good price, okay? Like, cheaper than they would be in April. But then after I bought them, I went, oh, shit. I just put those on my credit card. So, I'm, I'm just, I don't know if, well, for me, when I read that, and I go, okay, yes, that's what happens. I, I got less full about mm-hmm. going, I could have waited, and you know I followed the list, and then I went, oh shit! I just put $150 on my credit card. You waited
1: well. <laughs> 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 you could have bought. You could have bought a whole season's worth. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about that too. See, so <laughs> there you go. So, you know. yeah. Well, it's the, 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 this theme of renunciation of letting I, I don't like renunciation as a word, particularly myself. It's used a lot, but I like the, abandon, the notion of abandoning, letting go, not picking up, not grasping. Um,
3: Tony? Uh, yeah. The, the mm-hmm. thing also about the focusing on the unpleasant, you could take that same situation, and you could see how lust basically colors our perception. And by taking the instruction of focusing on the unpleasant, you could actually look at beyond the lust to go, oh, and here's the downside. The downside is, right. is here's this money that you've put on credit, right? Yeah.
1: But all you're thinking of is.
3: And all you're, all you're seeing is right. the, the, the pleasant so and the fun lust. Last and the. Year, yeah. and,
1: and, and it, right. And so that's. That's what that's what we're talking about with the the focusing on the unpleasant instead of on the pleasant is looking at the downside and not being totally captivated because you you weren't imagining the traffic jams or the the unpleasant (laughs) stuff stuff getting into the park or I don't know how far you have to drive to get there but you know it's you know and the fact that you bought these tickets and you could wind up just eating them because you might not get to go so you're not focusing on the. (laughs) <laughs> I've, I've, I've done that one too, so you by not attending to the to the un, and those are the un, that's the unpleasant side. So that's what he's talking about, being being aware of the the whole range of of experience that that gets brought. So, um, and it,
0: just one thing you were talking earlier, and, and these themes are sort of going around now about the focusing on the unpleasant mm-hmm. and the catalog practice. I, I have a practice of... Ca- it's a very simple, strong practice. If you f- look at the catalog... So the catalog, you're not immediately usually going to jump up. I mean, maybe you could and get on the get on your computer or on the phone and buy something. But but seeing that un- the unpleasant underneath... As you flip through the catalog, seeing... What comes up? It's just um, so taking it kind of as a practice. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a simple thing, but it 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 um, conditions you towards seeing the unpleasant within the pleasant or under the pleasant.
1: So I'm looking at at the time, and and we we've reached the. I've gone through the, the sections on renunciation. What I'd like to do is to, is to, take, a, is to take our lunch break at this point and uh, come back and we'll talk about... Um, boy, it starts getting real fun now. Uh, we'll start with, with discussion, discussing the path as the Buddha describes it and move on through the difficulties and uh, and how, just how to do it. Hopefully. So why don't we why don't we plan to take about what do we say what what if, an hour and fifteen minutes if we come back at 1.30, does that sound good?